Hey everyone, this is Nick and welcome back to your weekly Linux and open source news podcast. And well, <laughs> I can't lie, it's been a mixed bag of good and bad news this week. Because on the one hand, we have research confirming that Windows 11 sends data to third parties without user consent and right after a fresh install. And we also have an AI tool that has been proven to use GPL code without publishing any of their modifications or respecting attribution. But on the other hand, we also have Fedora finally moving to the full flat hub instead of their own curated subsets of apps available there. We have performance improvements coming to GNOME software and we have news from the Thunderbird development roadmap which paint a pretty positive picture of what's coming. So I have no idea if I should be happy or worried by all of this. But before we discuss all of this, just a reminder, you can find all the links to the articles I used to make this show right in the show notes, as well as the time codes for the various topics. If you want to comment or interact with me on the various topics or on the podcast in general, you can head over to the website at podcast.thelinuxexp.com and you can leave a comment there. And you'll also find plenty of links to my socials in the show notes, as well as a link to Patreon, because as another reminder, this podcast is currently user-funded only, so it's free of ads and sponsors. And if you enjoyed this way, please consider, if you're able to, uh, subscribing on Patreon to support the show. Now, let's begin. So, with the main title of the podcast, and if there was still any doubt, it has now been confirmed that Windows 11 is basically spyware. A recent video from a YouTube channel called the PC Security Channel shows that even after a completely fresh install straight from the ISO of Windows 11 without any other manufacturer stuff added on top of it, the latest version of Windows 11 reaches out to third-party servers right off the bat and without asking for any user permission. The YouTuber used Wireshark to analyze the DNS traffic and they found out that Windows 11 connects to MSN, to Bing, and also to Windows Update immediately right after boot, which seems pretty normal. It's probably in the telemetry data that you have to agree to when you install Windows 11. You can't completely disable that telemetry graphically before you install. You have to agree to at least the minimum viable data collection that Windows wants you to have. But what's more worrying is that Windows also reaches out to third parties, like Steam, McAfee, or Comscore Market Research, and that on a fresh install without any of these tools installed. All these requests provide telemetry data to various advertising companies, to market researchers, and even to some geolocation domains. And these are things that are done without user permission. You really cannot argue that this data has to be sent to these third parties to ensure the correct operation of Windows. It cannot be included in the telemetry because it doesn't go to a first party, namely Microsoft, and it's not crucial for Windows to work, which means that it's probably in violation of GDPR in Europe, for example. Now, the same YouTuber tried Windows XP as a comparison point and found out that this OS basically only calls to Windows Update once and nothing else. And granted, Windows XP was released in 2001, and at the time, user data was not remotely as valuable as it is today. But this shows a very worrying trend. 
the biggest operating system on the market, the one that is used by virtually everyone, is completely careless with user data, with user preferences or consent. And it decides to supply third parties with data without user knowledge. That There's something really rotten here, basically. And if you compound that with the various ads that Microsoft stacks on top of the default experience, you get ads in the start menu for various apps you could install. Uh, you get ads in the news widget overlay. You get ads on the lock screen. You get ads in the search tool. And you get ads for Microsoft products in the file explorer. So it's becoming really clear that the focus of Windows isn't to provide the user with a tool that lets them actually use their computer. The goal is to extract as much data and money out of the user as possible. And as a reminder, Windows isn't a free product. You pay for it when you buy a computer. Or if you want to buy a license, you have to buy it from the Microsoft Store and it costs upwards of $100. Which means that not only are you paying for a product, but you're also paying after buying that product with your data. It really sucks. And I mean, okay, telemetry, I, I'm not for it. I don't think it's great. And I don't think that Windows should have a minimum telemetry that you have to use. I think they should let users completely disable telemetry if they want. I think they should let users completely opt out of ads in the experience because that's really horrible <laughs> as a user experience to have ads by default. But data to third parties without user consent, that's a clear breach of various privacy laws. And I think it's just unacceptable. Now, fortunately, if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're using Linux and not Windows, and so you're unaffected by this. But yeah, it's still nice to have some reassurance that, that our decision to use Linux was probably the correct one, at least privacy-wise. And well, if you haven't made the jump to Linux, I think that's a nice, good argument for you to at least try it uh, if you're able to, and if the apps that you absolutely need to work also are available or have cool replacements on Linux. Now, let's alternate with some good news. Fedora is finally embracing Flatpak and Flathub fully. Now, Fedora always was on the forefront of the Flatpak thing. They pushed it, they have developers working on it, and they basically integrated support for it as soon as it was viable, which is great. Fedora is generally always on the forefront of the new technological Linux stack. But until now, they had decided to stick to their own Flatpak remote by default. And, and that Fedora Flatpak remote only offered a very small subset of the applications available on Flathub. Uh, they generally didn't update them as fast as they were updated on Flathub. And they were not published by the original developers. They were just republished by Fedora, which is also another concern. Well, fortunately, this will end with Fedora 38 which will offer access to the full Flathub as a third-party remote that users can enable easily. So this proposal was actually made at the time where Fedora 37 uh, was being worked on, but it had been rejected at the time by the Fedora Steering Committee. And now it's been accepted, which is cool, because it means that Fedora users, as long as they tick that little box that lets them enable third-party remotes in the first-run setup of GNOME or in GNOME software after the fact, well, these users will get access to the entirety of Flathub without having to add it manually themselves. And granted, this operation was not very difficult before. You could just head over to the Flathub website. You could download any application from there, 
double-click it to install it, and the GNOME App Store would automatically add FlatHub as a remote, which means that all the FlatHub apps would be available in GNOME software, and your app would be installed. It wasn't super tricky, but it was still something that users had to know about and had to do. And a new user that doesn't really know that much about Linux, about Flatpak, about software centers and how it works, might have been pretty confused why some applications were not available on Fedora out of the box and might not have known how to add them without looking it up online, which is not a great first look. If we want Linux to look as easy as possible, it should have access to as many apps as possible, especially when we have such a nice, full-on, super well-stocked remote uh, such as FlatHub. So it's great to see that thing resolved. And FlatHub currently has over 2,000 applications available, including, well, some very, very popular ones that everyone knows about, like GIMP, LibreOffice, Inkscape, Firefox, other browsers, and a lot more. But this is still a great step, and if it could push other distributions to follow suit, then we could probably have a very nice app install experience for everyone. And maybe it would also entice more developers to actually work on the last remaining kinks in the Flatpak software stack. Uh, that would be great. So yes, I'm looking at you, Elementor OS. Uh, please start adding FlatHub either as an option that users can just click once on and enable that install because your little text link when a search result returns nothing, when a search returns nothing in the App Center, that's, that's just not enough. You need to add FlatHub entirely in one click. That's the very minimum that you should have if you support Flatpak. And now let's alternate this with another piece of bad news. Uh, a developer found that an AI tool called voice.ai uses open source libraries, but they do not respect the open source licenses that come with these libraries, uh, namely the GPL version 3 and the LGPL version 2.1. Uh, the, the tool voice.ai looks like it uses code from Pratt, P-R-A-A-T, which is an open source speech analysis software, and they use that to build their own AI tool, which is their real-time voice synthesizer. And they also use libgcrypt, but in both instances, they don't release the source code of the modifications they built on top of it, they don't release the source code of their tool at all, and they don't follow attribution in any readme file or any dialogue in the application. Nowhere is it mentioned that they use these libraries. And they should mention it because it's part of the license. They have to. They're forced to legally. And they even actively prevent transferring the code or the product to anyone in their own licensing terms. So not only do they not respect the licenses, but they very literally contradict themselves. They contradict the licenses in their own terms and conditions. Now, the developer who found out about this uh, wrote a blog post, which will be in the show notes as well, uh, in which they explain how they uncovered this violation of licenses. They used reverse engineering tools, and they looked for specific references to specific strings used in the open source libraries that they used. And then the developer reached out to voice.ai in their Discord server for an explanation. And then they were banned for it because, well, they mentioned reverse engineering, which is apparently not allowed, and so without warning, they were just banned from the server. Now, the company has since uh, posted an answer, which is absolutely self-contradictory, because they say that, no, they do not violate any open source licenses, but at the same time, they admit that they used these open source libraries. And so if they used these libraries, 
well then yes, they violated the licenses because they did not follow the terms that are attached to them. They did not mention that they were using them, they did not publish any source code linked to them. So yes, they violated the licenses. Now, they said that they will make the relevant source code available in their GitHub repo, but that probably just means that they will republish the source code for these two libraries, uh, as is mandated by the licenses, but they will probably not publish any changes that they made to that source code or the source code to their whole product, which basically they also probably should do. They also said that they since have removed all GPL v3 code from their software, but it doesn't fix the issue because up until the point where they removed that code, they used it. And so the license stipulates that they should release the source code for their tool that they built on top of this library. So yeah, they probably will not do that judging from their reaction and it sucks. And the fact that it's an AI tool isn't really relevant to the issue. It's just another startup that used some false code without respecting the work or the legal terms of use. But it's also increasingly clear that companies that are building AI tools have no regard for any kind of license of attribution or copyright, whether it's from code or from art or from text or anything else that they use to build their models or to build their product. They want to move fast and they just don't care about the legal implications of what they actually use to produce their work, which sucks. And I'm gonna bore you a little bit more with another AI topic, uh, because that's gonna add some water to the mail of artists that want AI to be more regulated. Because it looks like AI models can be forced into giving you real photos of real people and copyright images as well. There's some new research that proved that AI systems can be made to just regurgitate exact copies of pictures, of medical images and copyrighted works by various artists. And those images were all used to train the algorithm, which means that the AI tool doesn't just generate stuff. It can also just spit out the image that was used to train it. The researchers used Stable Diffusion and Google's Imogen, uh, using people's names as a prompt, and they then analyzed the results to see if the images matched original photos that were in the model's database. And they managed to extract 100 replicas of said images. So basically what they've proved is that these AI models actually memorize images that they are trained on, which creates two main problems. The first problem is obviously related to privacy, because you have the ability to access anything that the AI was trained with, including personal photos, medical data, and more. And that kind of sucks, because these images that were used in machine learning models were never uh, obtained with the user's consent. Uh, as far as we know, they never asked anyone if they could use the images. They just scraped them off the internet without any attribution, without any copyright, which might not have been a legal issue if these images were absolutely not accessible, if the AI tool just completely generated new pictures. But seeing as they can give you the exact picture they used to train themselves, then it's definitely a privacy violation. But the other issue is that, well, the AI actually memorized a copyrighted image. So it's not just generating something. It is using copyrighted work without permission, which might have legal implications that would really strengthen the case of multiple artists or of Getty Images even, who are already suing Stable Diffusion for that exact problem. They stated that the model has copied their work without permission and they're seeking compensation. 
And this argument might be dismissed if all you're seeing is the AI generating purely new works. But as soon as the AI just spits out an image and then you can clearly point out to it and say, you see, they used our images to train themselves on. The data set is now visible. We know that they used our copyrighted works. Well, then the legal case becomes a little bit easier in favor of artists or Getty images. Now, these findings generally probably make it more likely that these cases and these lawsuits will move forward. But they also have their limits, uh, because only one image in a million was an exact copy of something the AI was trained on. And these images were basically images of people with either very unusual features or very unusual names, which made them easier to surface. But like one researcher said, what matters is the fact that you can get exact copies more than zero times. If it happens once, it means that the dataset isn't just used to generate stuff. It's memorized and can be accessed, which definitely represents a misuse of copyrighted works. Now, there is something that I missed at the end of January. Uh, it's about Mycroft. If you don't know what Mycroft is, it's basically an open source voice assistant that you can either download and install on any hardware that you own, but you can also buy a Mycroft device that the company makes themselves. Uh, it's, the, the latest versions basically look like a Google Nest, but it's powered by open source software, uh, which is private and, and doesn't send data anywhere. Well, it looks like Mycroft is in big trouble. In a blog post from their CEO, they explained that they had to lay off most of the staff of the company at the end of 2022, which left them with only two developers, a customer service agent and an attorney. And more worrying, they will have to completely cease development at the end of this month if they can't secure any additional funding, which is a big blow to that project. Now, they took provisions to ensure that the device that have been sold uh, will still be shipped to customers and that new devices ordered will also still be shipped. And they also made provisions to ensure that development can keep, uh, can keep up on the main source code base, but they didn't really explain how or who would ensure that development. But yeah, it's, uh, it's not great. It's really not great. And they say that their mission, uh, the mission Mycroft set out to accomplish, which was basically building a private voice assistant that can work for everyone, well, that mission is still to be realized. And they also ensure people that their devices won't become bricks. Uh, they want to make sure that even if they have to shut down their servers, then the devices that are in operation today can keep working. But again, they didn't really explain how they wanted to ensure that this would happen. So yeah, it's it's pretty nebulous. It's the, the blog post is titled part one and there still hasn't been a part two. So maybe the CEO will come out and, and explain more of that stuff and explain who will maintain the code, who will ensure that shipping is still done for new devices being bought and how they will bypass the fact that if their servers shut down, where will Mycroft have its information stored? Will it run purely locally? Uh, will it need a local server that you run at home? It's not been explained yet, and I hope they can figure out something because the project always looked pretty interesting, and uh, and it felt to me like it had a little bit of interest behind it. But yeah, maybe there was just not enough people interested in such a device, or maybe just people ran it on their own devices, and so financial contributions were not enough to sustain the development. 
Still, it's pretty sad to see a project like this failing because it means that we're basically stuck with non-private voice assistants if we need a voice assistant. Uh, we're stuck with Alexa, with Google, uh, with Siri or with uh, whatever else, Bixby and stuff like that, which, yeah, they are not the greatest at preserving your user data. So, yeah, it blows. And now let's move back to some good news. Uh, if you're a GNOME user, at least, uh, you might have noticed that the GNOME software application can sometimes be pretty slow to display stuff, uh, especially when you navigate through a category. If you click, for example, on the productivity category or the gaming category, the time it takes for GNOME software to populate the list of application can be pretty long. Uh, their profiling work, the, the GNOME team's profiling work, showed that it could take up to four seconds and, and sometimes more depending on your, on your connection and computer. But there is good news because the prolific George Stavrakas has spent some time profiling and monitoring GNOME software using SysProf, which is a system profiling tool, which looks nice and has a graphical user interface, which lets you see basically which requests take a long time and which operation uh, this request was doing. If you use, uh, if you're a web developer and you use the network tab of your inspector, that's basically the same thing, but for applications, uh, not for websites. And so they detected that there was one specific operation that took itself more than four seconds to execute. And this operation is the one used to list the applications in a category page in GNOME software. So then they looked into it more and they found that loading app icons was the main problem here because some applications don't declare a local hosted application icon, they declare a remote icon that GNOME software has to be downloaded, for example, from Flathub. But some apps also have invalid URLs for these icons, which means that they are not reachable, which means that GNOME software can sometimes just try to reach them until it times out. And so it's waiting for these requests to end before it displays anything. And so they quickly fixed the issue by using first a cache for application icons and also by displaying things even when not everything has been uh, ready, has been downloaded. And they're just queuing up the downloads in the background. And they published a quick video showing the differences, showing a before and after comparison. And the new version takes less than half the time of the old one to display the same elements, which is really cool. I always love seeing some good work being done on performance because it has a huge impact on how users perceive an operating system. Even if all your apps open super fast, even if resizing a window is super quick, even if your computer boots quickly, when you're inside of an application, if it takes ages to load something, it just doesn't feel responsive, it just doesn't feel good to use. Uh, the same if you have stutters or slowdowns. So system profiling and improving performance of applications is a huge part of having a system that feels snappy and responsive. And since we all know that Linux tends to use less resources on computers than what Windows or macOS could do, then it's also nice to have that snappy performance show inside of applications as well, which is really cool. So let's hope this work makes it to other GNOME applications, maybe to the GNOME shell. I think they already started profiling a GNOME shell as well to find the bottlenecks and issues. So maybe we're gonna see some nice performance improvements in GNOME in the future. Okay, now let's talk about Thunderbird. Uh, if, like me, you never really managed to get used to Thunderbird because the interface just felt really dated and convoluted, 
Then there's an interesting read uh, from Alex, which is their product design manager. He posted a blog post explaining the history of the project, uh, the, the development model that has shifted over time, and the roadmap that they have. So obviously their goal is to get rid of all that technical debt and that UI debt that has accumulated over the past 10 years. Thunderbird is an old project and it's been built on top of Firefox's code, which means that it's basically a full-on web browser that renders emails and contacts and calendars. And so it can be pretty heavy. And they also encountered a bunch of problems over time uh, using Firefox's code base because, well, Firefox developers develop a web browser. And this means that they sometimes break things that have no impact on Firefox, but might break Thunderbird, which means that they were not able to ship a new version of Thunderbird until they worked around that problem. So it's a very interesting read in terms of how you can work uh, basically piggybacking off another project. And, uh, and it's nice. But they also went over the history of Thunderbird uh, and its community model. Basically, Thunderbird used to be a Mozilla project developed by Mozilla employees. But then Mozilla sort of abandoned it and released it to the community, which sparked a lot of user funding and some community-driven work. The issue is it happened so fast that developers sort of created a mishmash of user experiences, convoluted UI as they added features, and since there wasn't really a guiding hand to ensure that stuff was following a specific direction, it resulted in Thunderbird's current user interface, which is very incoherent and pretty hard to wrap your head around uh, if you're new to the application. Now, since then, the project moved back to a Mozilla subsidiary, and now has plenty of full-time paid employees working on it, which is great. But it also means that the development model is not a free-for-all as it used to be. There's now a, a lead developer, there's now some lead designers, which have the power to reject contributions uh, if they're not up to the standards that they want to enforce in terms of UI or code quality, which is probably a good change, but must have felt a bit brutal uh, for people contributing regularly to Firefox and used to have their contributions just going on and, and being accepted and being implemented in the software. Now, it's still open source and it's still open. It just has a basically a steering committee. It has a, a decision-making people that say, yes, this works well enough or this doesn't. And I think it's better to work like that to ensure that you have a coherent product that works as it's supposed to work. And now with Thunderbird being sustainable with user funding and contributions and with this Mozilla subsidiary uh, financing paid developers, they're focusing on removal technical debt and rebuilding each module in turn to have a better experience all around. So each core module, like the email, like the contacts, like the calendar, like uh, creating a new account, the RSS feeds, is being rebuilt bit by bit and being, let's say, extracted from the core of Thunderbird. Because the fact that they're not a part of the current operations of Mozilla also means that they lost some kind of communication with the Firefox developers, which means that they don't really have all that much access uh, to them and they can't really have some feedback uh, to give to them to say, hey, you know what, this thing that you're planning, it might completely break our application, so we're going to have a hard time working around that. They kind of lost that kind of access because they're not an official Mozilla project anymore. So they can't really just say, hey, you know what? Wait a minute, guys, uh, slow down the Firefox release cycle because it's going to break Thunderbird. Uh, the Firefox developers will say, we don't care. Th this is not our product. You're using our code base. 
if it's broken for you, then you have to work around it. So their goal is to rebuild each module individually and so they can have a better, more solid core and they can iterate faster, release faster. And the first visible results will be in July in their next version, uh, version 1.15, that will bring a new, simple and clean user interface uh, for new users, so it's legible and understandable, but they're still keeping a bunch of customization options, so long-term Thunderbird users that actually like the current UI can still have access to it and can still use it, which I think is great. It's the best of both worlds. They're rebuilding modules to be more stable, but they're also ensuring that people who actually like the app as it is aren't completely lost by something that they would feel has been dumbed down or oversimplified, and it's great. And so that's basically their roadmap for the next two years, refining the user experience, rebuilding the modules, eliminating technical debt and UI debt. And I think it's a, a very healthy goal uh, to have a very powerful application because Thunderbird has all the power and basically all the trappings of a fantastic email client and calendar client. It could be a viable product for virtually everybody, but the current interface is, in my opinion, really detracting from its usability. So if they focus on fixing that, I'm pretty sure that Thunderbird will gain market share really fast uh, in, in its sphere. Now let's talk about some concerning stuff happening uh, on Google search. Uh, they're being abused by malware developers, specifically Google ads uh, is being abused. Uh, basically some malware developers are buying Google ads to push fake products like fake Thunderbird or fake Adobe Reader, GIMP, Microsoft Teams or OBS. They're creating ads that let people think that they're going to download the real thing, but instead they download Aura Stealer, Iced ID, Formbook or Xloader and any other virus or Trojan uh, that they might happen upon. And it's pretty concerning because it means that the the malicious actors have found a way to completely bypass any check that Google has put in place to detect uh, if, for example, the product that is being advertised is not at all the product that is being downloaded. They just either don't check or the ways they used to check are outdated and being bypassed. Now, Google issued a statement saying that they're ramping up advertiser verification to try and detect scams in a better way and earlier, and that they're working to resolve the issues. But still, right now, Google allows people to download stuff that clearly isn't the right program. Like an MD5 check would probably immediately reveal that, no, it's not the right thing. And, and more baffling is the fact that the URLs used in these ads are often already flagged as malicious by third-party anti-malware engines, which means that Google might not have any such check in place right now before approving an ad. And now, to be fair, malware developers are extremely good at finding workarounds and tricks to hide their intentions. Uh, for example, they will make a thousand random requests to encrypted content over a bunch of different domains, uh, so they create some kind of smokescreen that makes it really hard to auto-detect that there's a malicious URL in it. But right now, the reality of it is that if you use Windows, you should never click on a Google ad to download software you should look for the official website for that software and download it from them, or even better, download it from the Microsoft Store if it's in there. If you use Windows, do not download programs off of Google or Google Ads. 
go to the developer's website every time, check the URLs, verify when you're connected in your browser that the security certificate, you click on the little lock icon next to the URL, check that this is really the right one, that it's for the right domain, and check that they didn't just use a trick like using a capital I instead of an L or stuff like that. It's important because if not, then you're gonna get infected. Now, us on Linux, we're relatively safe from now because generally our app stores have most of these big name apps that we would be looking at and we know that we're supposed to download from these app stores or repos. And also these malicious individuals generally target Windows and not Linux desktop because basically there's more money to be made on Windows, so why would you waste your time? But still, it could happen. They could push a, a fake flat pack, they could push a fake app image that has the exact same issues. So yeah, basically always use your app store if you can, and if you can't, try to look the real website of a developer to make sure that you're not downloading something weird. The website could also be hacked and could distribute an infected binary. It could happen, but it's less likely. Now let's talk a little bit about browser engines and iOS. And it looks like we might potentially have a new legal battle ahead uh, because Google is currently working on an experimental web browser for iOS that uses Blink instead of WebKit. Now currently, if you don't know on iOS, all web browsers that you can download, whether it's Chrome, Firefox, Brave, Edge, or whatever, they all use WebKit, which is Safari's engine. Apple forbids app developers to create, or at least to distribute on their app store, browsers that don't use WebKit. So you, when you're using Chrome, you're not using Chrome's engine. When you're using Firefox, you're not using Gecko, etc., etc. You're basically using Safari everywhere with a different UI. And supposedly it's for security reasons, but it's probably more to make sure that they can keep control over what web apps can do because if they ship a crippled web browser, uh, which is what they're basically doing, like Safari is basically the worst nightmare of website developers. It's regularly reported as the most problematic for web compatibility these days, uh, at least on mobile. That, that's what they want to do. They want to ship a crippled browser so people keep downloading applications from the app store where they make money. Because if you use a web app that works just as well as a native app that you can add to your home screen, that has notification, hardware acceleration, the ability to subscribe without paying any money to Apple, then they lose money. So they don't want that. So basically for now it's all locked down and all you're using is Safari with a different UI. And so for now, Google's experimental web browser would not be allowed on the Apple App Store. But since there are some EU regulations coming in to force what they call gatekeepers to be more open, it might happen. Uh, Apple might be forced, at least in the EU, to open up their app store to alternative browser engines other than WebKit. And so Google might have a shot at publishing their browser. Or maybe they're also just planning something along the lines of what Epic Games did, which is build the browser, try to publish it, immediately get denied, and then sue Apple on the grounds of monopoly abuse, uh, which would be absolutely ironic coming from Google, but still, it could happen. Now, for now, Google says that they have no intention of publishing the browser. It's only built as a part of a project to understand certain aspects of iOS's performance. They say it won't be available to users, and the code of the project seems to reflect that. Uh, it's completely missing any kind of sandboxing and just-in-time compilation support for JavaScript, which is basically something that you need to have good JavaScript performance on a modern browser. 
but you never know. If there's a slight opening in the door, they will probably decide to release a web browser with their own engine. And it looks like Firefox is also working on their own Gecko-powered browser for iOS. Gecko being the web rendering engine in Firefox. A Mozilla spokesperson responded to a request for comment, saying that they're also doing some exploratory work to understand what having a real Firefox version on iOS would mean in terms of development, of challenges, of issues, uh, when policies eventually change in the App Store. So basically, they're readying themselves uh, for releasing something. Now, they say that they currently respect Apple's guidelines because they clearly don't want to be ejected from the App Store. But yeah, as soon as the door is open, they're going to they're gonna move in. But there's still one issue looming over all of this. Because while I am absolutely all for openness, and I would absolutely love to use a real Firefox with the real Gecko engine on iOS, it still would probably mean that everyone would move to Chrome, and so Blink, the rendering engine used in Chrome, would not only have a monopoly on the desktop, as it already has, but also on mobile which would also mean that Google has complete control everywhere on every device on what the web can or can do. Because if they decide that there's a feature that could be interesting, but that could hurt their revenue, they will just decide to not accept it in the rendering engine. Developers will then never adopt it on their websites because what's the point? If 90% of the population can access your feature, why waste any time? and forks of Blink to add that feature would only be used by alternative browsers, which would never make a dent in Google's monopoly. So basically, yeah, as long as they control Blink, and if Blink is basically the default rendering engine that everyone uses on desktop and on mobile, then the web belongs to Google. And that's not a good thing, honestly. I think we can all agree on that. Okay, now let's take a look at what's been brewing in the GNOME world. Uh, now first, they worked on GNOME Builder, which is the IDE, the Integrated Development Environment, uh, which is used to build GNOME apps. So they moved some components uh, to more up-to-date GDK4 widgets, which enables them to have drag and drop in the project tree. They also improved the global search in the tool uh, to support filtering and previewing of search results. Now, Loop, which is the new image viewer being worked on, uh, which supports like a finger pinching, uh, a finger pinching gesture to zoom in and out. Uh, they also added some new stuff like uh, new gestures to navigate between images when you have multiple ones open at the same time. They revamped image browsing code to fix some bugs. They now support moving images to the trash straight from the image viewer and they fixed a bunch of bugs. But what's more important is that it's been accepted in the GNOME Incubator program, which is a process that lets applications become GNOME core applications, so part of what's shipping by default in GNOME, which means that in the future, we might see that loop tool uh, be the new default image viewer for GNOME, which is absolutely cool. Now, we also have Warp, which is a little file transfer app from point to point, from computer to computer, uh, it got a new release that supports QR code. So now you can just scan a QR code or send it to someone and they can scan it and download your file, which is nice. And they're also working on an experimental Windows version. So it's going to be easier to use on multiple computers if you're not only on Linux. Someone is also working on a new app called iPlan, uh, which is basically a to-do list app with support for projects, for boards, for, well, checking tasks off, etc., etc. It's too early to say how well it works, but since I'm a big sucker for trying out new productivity tools, I actually spend 
more time researching productivity tools than actually doing stuff, then I will absolutely give it a shot as soon as it is released. Now, there's also a new app called Design, which is a new 2D CAD application. It supports the DXF format. It uses common workflows that other CAD apps also traditionally use. And you can use it using the command line or a toolbar. It also handles layers and it has entities that you can interrogate and modify. Basically, it's a CAD tool. It looks like it's being primarily used to, or at least primarily conceived, to design electronics boards, because that's basically what you do with 2D CAD modeling. But who knows, maybe at some point it will expand to 3D CAD and, uh, and be a competitor to AutoCAD, one might dream. It's still cool. Uh, GNOME is mainly known for its smaller, simple to use apps. And so having bigger projects like a CAD tool is actually really, really nice. Now, as for KDE, it's been a less eventful week. Uh, the team has added a few things still to the future release uh, that will be Plasma 6. Uh, they added the ability to define your default app for a lot more file types straight from the settings. They also revamped a little bit the accent color UI in the settings, so it uses less screen space. It's basically all in a single bar, and so it's going to free up some more space in the future to let developers add uh, a choice between day and night automatic color scheme switching. But that will be for Plasma 6 as well. Now, the on-screen display that shows the current audio device when, for example, you plug in a new audio headset, uh, it will also show the battery level of the device uh, if it's being reported, and they fix some visual glitches in various corners of various frames across applications. And there's also 108 bugs that's been fixed uh, that have been fixed in a single week, which is pretty cool. So as I said, all these changes will make it to Plasma 6, because, well, Plasma 5.27, which is the next release, uh, will be out in, uh, what, three days now? So, yeah, they just cannot add that to the new release right now. It's not, it, it wouldn't be reasonable. Uh, but, yeah, if you want to know more about KDE 5.27, I'll have a dedicated video on my YouTube channel. The link to that channel is in the show notes uh, of this podcast. And it's going to be a big one. It's the final bang uh, for KDE Plasma 5, the final release for this version. After that, it's KDE Plasma 6, and their roadmap is pretty packed. Uh, maybe I'll make a, a little dive or overlook of what they have planned. Uh, not everything that they plan will be in the first version of uh, KD Plasma 6, but there's still a lot of stuff that they have in the cards, and it looks like it's going to be an interesting uh, move from uh, Plasma 5. Okay, now let's conclude this already lengthy podcast uh, with the gaming news. So it looks like ray tracing on Linux is going to improve in the future because the Vulkan beta drivers for NVIDIA GPUs are now adding support for a new Vulkan extension which has the very cute name of VK underscore X underscore pipeline underscore library underscore group underscore handles. And what this new extension does is basically improve compatibility with certain DirectX 12 ray tracing calls. Now, Proton still needs to be updated to make use of that new extension. And for now, only the NVIDIA beta drivers have it. Uh, Mesa doesn't. So if you have an AMD GPU or Intel GPU, it's not being worked on currently, or at least it's, it's not in the same state as it is on NVIDIA drivers. But still, it's good news because it means that ray tracing in DirectX will be way more compatible uh, with Linux gaming in the future. So if you want to basically half your performance for just having some pretty sunlights and shadows, then you will be able to do that in the future. Personally, I never really saw the point. And let's talk about the Steam Deck. If you bought the lower storage capacity 
Steam Deck, and you feel that the performance penalty of using an SD card is still too big, even though it's really not that noticeable, but if you still feel that loading times take too long, well, you might be happy to learn that you will be able to buy easy replacement SSDs. So you can open up your Steam Deck and replace the SSD uh, for stuff that goes up to two terabytes. Uh, and we have Framework to thank for that, of, of all things. Uh, Framework is, yes, that same company that makes the Framework laptop, that super repairable, upgradable device where you can keep your whole chassis and change the motherboard. You have slottable ports that you can add or remove. So they're basically all focused towards repairability, upgradability. And so they apparently have decided that it would be a good idea to focus on other electronics devices that are available to the mass market. And so they're offering, uh, they will be offering uh, replacement SSDs for the Steam Deck. And why is that important? Because the Steam Deck uses an, an unconventional SSD format. They use a short version. You cannot just use any NVMe SSD that you could find on Amazon. It's a specific format and they're harder to come by. So having a nice, reliable supply source would be really cool for people who want to store a bunch of games on their disks and don't want to juggle uh, SD cards or, or just have to uninstall and reinstall stuff of their internal storage. I think it's pretty cool. And so props to Framework. And on that note, if anybody from where Framework is listening to this, I would love to have one of your devices to review. I still haven't gotten any and you haven't responded to any of my emails. So maybe I should reach out to Linus Tech Tips because apparently he has a stake in the company. Maybe, maybe you would ignore me as well because I'm too small. We'll see about that. So basically this concludes this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, a bit of doom and gloom topics this week, but a few highlights as well. I think it, it balances out nicely. So as always, if you want to know more about a specific topic, all the links to the articles are in the description, in the show notes, sorry, description is for a video. Uh, <laughs> they're all in the show notes. You also find links to all my social accounts and social media there. You can buy some merch if you want. You'll find links to my YouTube channel. And if you really enjoy the show and you want to keep it user-funded without ads and sponsors, and if you're able to financially, please consider subscribing on Patreon. Uh, even just one buck a month supports the show and it's really cool. So thank you all for listening and I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye!